Hey, everyone. As a listener of the Elevate podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Elevate Club. The Elevate Club is a new and exclusive membership community where over 100 members from around the world are working together to build their capacity. The Elevate Club is where I'm investing most of my time to connect with readers and listeners and answer their questions. Members of the Elevate Club get 12 months of access to a private Slack community for experience sharing and peer learning, private keynotes with me, monthly office hours, and free access to my courses on core values or remote work for up to three people. To learn more about the Elevate Club and sign up today, just go to elevate-club.com. That's E-L-E-V-A-T-E-club.com. Or you can click on the link in the show notes. I hope to see you in the Elevate Club. I think people do quit their boss. And we have really great managers who really treat their employees well and respect them and you know, want them to have a good career path, whether it's here or somewhere else. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Albert Einstein, strive not to be a success, but rather to be of value. My guest today, Aaron Leone, is dedicated to creating value for customers and employees. He is the founder and CEO of LD Products, the online ink rail retailer he built uh, with annual sales approaching $100 million. In addition to their industry success, LD Products is also known for its excellent company culture, employee retention, and an active alumni and network. Aaron, welcome. Excited to have you on the, on the Elevate podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before about the, the roller coaster of the last <laughs> two years from managing supply extremes to demand extremes. It has... It's been something a lot of us haven't seen before. Yeah, it's definitely been a roller coaster ride. Very uh, exciting, to say the least, the last couple of years. Uh, yeah, some people would say exciting. <laughs> Others might say terrifying. Maybe it was te- exciting the first month or two, and then it's become you know a little exhausting. Right, depends on which side of that coin you're on. So, I'm curious, you know, with with entrepreneurs, sort of where it started. Thinking back to your childhood, were, were you always pretty entrepreneurial? Were you? selling homework, you know, doing other stuff or, or, or did that come later for you? Yeah, I think looking back, I think, you know, when, when the first time I had to write a bio, it kind of dawned on me that um, been someone of an entrepreneur, didn't even know that what the word entrepreneur meant was till later. But, you know, as a kid growing up, I was always selling things, selling snow cones at, yeah. you know, outside <laughs> my apartment building, selling my Halloween candy to my dad. When Seems I like was an insider in, transaction. Yeah, I get special preferential uh, pricing. Um, when I was in high school, you know, baseball cards were really popular in the early 90s. Yeah. And I had a really successful baseball card business. Like we'd, we'd set up card tables in, the fr- in my front yard. And there were signs all over the neighborhood about like, go to this street on Downey Avenue uh, on Saturday and Sunday and buy baseball cards. And I would go to baseball card conventions and buy them at a big discount to the the Beckett, which was like the standard pricing model. Yeah, that was the book, right? Yeah, that was the book, the Beckett. And then I would sell them in my front yard and just kind of, I don't want to use the word hustle, but I would talk people into buying, buying my cards, you know? So that was fun. And then, you know, I was a pretty decent student in school. I was never like the straight A student. I was kind of the B student that didn't apply himself and didn't try very hard because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it just felt like a lot of work. You were bored. I was, yeah, it was like a lot more work to get an A. And I really didn't have to do anything to get a B. So I was a B student, graduated high school, went to um, a local community college, 
did well, but I took my first intro to business class and was like, oh, this is my jam. Like that because yeah. no one no like, one tells you that hustling baseball cards is like no one says to you know, if you're if you're good at math, they say, Oh, you can do engineering, if you're good at science, but no one says to you, Oh, you should be in business. It's a very interesting thing. No one ever identifies those skill sets with a, a vocation. I didn't know you can go get a degree in business yeah. growing up. That it wasn't a thing. I didn't, we didn't talk about that. I'm guessing you got an A in that intro to business class. <laughs> yeah, I set the bar for sure. Um, but yeah, so I took an intro to business class and I was like, oh, I'm a business person. Like, because I was looking at economics and yeah. you know, again, good, good at you know STEM classes. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be an engineer. And then I took calculus in high school and was like, this is not my jam. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't want this kind of math. So then took an intro to business class and realized that that was my thing and then figured out how to go to the, a great local business school, transferred to the University of Southern California, which has a great um, undergraduate business program at the, the Marshall School of Business. Got there and was like, these are my people. You know, it was like, and it was, it was awesome to just kind of get involved with other like-minded people that were entrepreneurial and into business and had other ideas and passions. And it was great to get out of kind of my bubble and into the bigger world. And you started a business in college, right? Yeah, so I transferred to SC. I mean, gosh, ages ago in in '98, which yeah. is, which is just so long ago now. But uh, I I transferred in '98, and I was in like this transfer housing dorm that was like an apartment building with all other transfer people. So it was great. Everybody was 21, a little older, a little more mature, and we had a great time together. And really quickly, I met a guy. There was a sign on a bulletin board that said, "Buy discount printer cartridges at." global-inkjet.com. And it just, there was never anything on the bulletin board. It was just for us. And then I was like, who put this ad up here? Uh, one, who's selling printer cartridges? And then why does this, why does this guy have a hyphen in his domain name? You know, yeah. it was just, you know, it was kind of odd. So I asked around, it was this guy, Josh, and became a friend of mine. And I just really nerded out on it. I'm like, like wait, wait, what are you doing? You're selling printer cartridges on the internet? And he explained that he was an affiliate for a company you know, a, a friend's dad had an affiliate company that sold kind of like multi-level marketing, but nobody was getting paid on it. It was just, uh, you got your own website. They, they you, yeah. you told them what URL you wanted, you know, Tom's toner shack.com. Got it. And then they fulfilled it and gave you a cut of it. Yeah, exactly. And they gave a really big kit, a cut, 25% cut. So he's going to school. He's making a couple hundred bucks a month. So he, all like, he needs wow. to do is market the URL. Really? That's it. Just send traffic to it. But it was really, it was in 98 and the website was horrible. It like had clip art on it. I can picture it. It's like aqua green background with, yeah. It was really bad. If you wanted to email them, you clicked on an animated GIF of a mailbox with flames on it. Nice. Yeah. So it was very childish. And the first thing I told him was like, wow, I can't believe anybody's giving you their credit card number because it was so, so I didn't know HTML. I didn't know programming and that kind of stuff, but I knew that with some modifications, it could, it could do better. But was he, was he making any money? Making a couple hundred bucks a month. And as a college student, that was a lot. Yeah, that's better than a job 20 years ago as a college student. A hundred percent, hundred percent. So I said, hey, Josh, can I help you out? And, you know, let's kind of join forces and I'll, I'll learn how to make your website better. I'll do marketing with you. And we did that for a couple months. And Christmas break of 98, we went to Vegas because that's what you do when you're 21. And he, I was like, hey, Josh, time to pay up. And he gave me a hundred bucks and I was like, Josh, like, I know this is, we've made a lot more than a hundred bucks. I don't, you know, we probably shouldn't be partners. I'll just go out on my own. So got back from Vegas, hit up the company that he was working for and said, Hey, I'm a friend of Josh's. I've already been kind of in the background. I want my own website. So Josh was global inkjet. And I said, Hey, what's bigger than the globe, the universe. 
So my first website was universalinkjet.com because I needed to one up Josh because I had, you know, a chip on my shoulder. But universal also is a good good term in terms of like cartridge fit, right? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So it had the extra meaning. So I finally got all that set up in April of 99. And just that's all I did. I almost like I you know started doing really bad in school, kind of failed some of my tests, and my teachers were kind of worried. I was like, look, I'm starting up this business. I'm doing this like literally 20 hours a day. I was sleeping four hours a day. So what what is it you had to do? You're just marketing, basically, right? Because everything or oh. I cleaned up the website. I built a new template that used their content and made it look way better. And then I just learned everything I could about search engine positioning and SEO and, you know, it was, this is in 99. So it was like, you know, banner ads. So you weren't just marketing in college. You were marketing on the internet for this. I wasn't marketing in college at all. Josh was going around handing out pamphlets at like the USC football games. And I was like, Josh, you have an internet website. Why are you doing like, this, you got to scale this thing. So yeah. yeah, I've always, it's, it was always online and it did really well. And, you know, it was back when Yahoo was a directory and not a search engine. And, you know, there wasn't even Google yet. I mean, this is early for e-commerce, right? Early. This is, yeah. Although Inkjet, Ink is probably something people were willing to take a risk buying online at that point. It's just a part. It was, I consider it like the best product to sell at that time because it was a natural product to buy on the internet. Yeah. If you're at the computer and the little light pops up and says you're out of toner or low on ink, you open your browser and you order it. And then you had a little drop down and let them figure out which model it was and the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, I ripped my pants. Let me go walk to the computer and order some new jeans. Yeah. It was, you know, very early, an easy product to buy on the internet. It's a part. You don't have to try it on. You don't have to smell it. You don't have to feel the fabric. It's yeah. just, I, I have XYZ part and it fits and, and it does well. So I did that for a while and it started doing really well. And, and within like 30 days, I was the largest affiliate and I got my first $5,000 commission check. And I was like, job, I don't need a job. So that's like 20 grand probably today. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like the richest person in college at the time, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. It was quite remarkable and it did really well. And, you know, I studied, I was studying finance thinking I was going to go into banking or management consulting or what all the other smart kids were doing, which I didn't even understand what a lot of those things were. And then in interviews, people were like, why are you interviewing for this job when you have this internet company? And I was like, you're right. Why am I doing this? So they kind of talked me in. I wouldn't say they talked me into it, but they helped rationalize that it could be a full-time business that I could do full-time. So I decided to go out on my own and I got rid of the affiliate company. That's what I was going to say. So that's a big jump because now you got to get into the product and fulfillment in addition to marketing, right? And I didn't realize that. I, didn't, I just <laughs> yeah. thought like, oh, I'm going to make more money if I cut out the other people. And then really, Most people would die for a 25% margin in their business when they do stock everything, right? I was 22 <laughs> or 21 years old when I made that decision and I would have not made that decision again. Yeah. yeah. I would kill for a 25% margin. Right. It's so funny. Yeah. So... I, um, you know, was doing okay. And, you know, it's funny. I got a I borrowed 10 grand from my parents. They gave me a very high interest loan. Cause my, you know, my mom was like, well, you'll never pay us back unless we add interest to this thing. So, um, borrowed 10 grand, bought some inventory, uh, for, you know, I was already getting these really detailed commission statements and they were saying what I was selling all that kind of stuff. So it was pretty, so you easy. knew what inventory, yeah, you needed. It wasn't a shot in the dark. I didn't just order 10 of everything. Did you have a, did they have a non-compete that you had signed or no? No, no they had nothing. And I kind of felt bad because yeah. I left. I was their largest affiliate. And then I set up my own affiliate network 
And yeah. all of the other affiliates came to mind because I had a better website. I had more products. I had better product images. I had all that stuff. So that was kind of, I don't know, whatever it is, what it is. But uh, yeah, went out on my own and graduated in May of 2000. Was doing maybe, you know, still very small, like, you know, 50 orders a day, 25 orders a day. But it was, you know, doing decent. I was making money off of it. You brought up the fulfillment side. Bought inventory, realized I needed to, somebody needed to pack order. So I hired a friend of mine. And that was our first employee. And he would pack the orders at night um, in his bedroom. Like our first warehouse was like his bedroom closet because we only had like 30 SKUs. Um, and it was very mom. It was very much like an eBay or Etsy business now. Yeah. Very small hand, you know, handwriting shipping labels and walking him into the post office and stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, the goal was once we hit 100 orders a day, we'd get a real office. So we got our first real office in October of 2000, and we we're doing roughly 100 orders a day. And it was, what was the now, brand. What was the brand at that time? It was four inkjets. Okay. So four inkjets was the first. Well, it was universal inkjet, but that became kind of complicated. Um, somebody came out with a universal inkjet refill kit. So it was kind of like I got a lot of extra mar free marketing for that, but they didn't like it. And I was like, well, I was here first. You can't really do anything about it. So then we kind of paused Universal Inkjet and Four Inkjets was the big brand for a long time. Um, and then it's funny, LD was just like uh, some initials that were on our credit card statements. And because we own, you know, I own Universal Inkjet, I own Four Inkjets. Um, I had this affiliate program with all these other websites and everything got processed under one credit card processing account, one, one merchant account. And I just needed some letters, you know, some generic corporate name. So LD came out of there. And then people started doing searches for LD. What is LD? Because it was on their credit card statements. And then it just evolved and it became a brand that now we're cool with. And I would say for a long time, I didn't like it, but it's become our main corporate brand. Everything we sell is branded LD pro LD with a cool little you know logo yeah. on it. Our coffee mugs say LD products in here. Uh, so we fully embraced it. But for a long time, we were mostly other names. Like we own inkcartridges.com. We own 123inkjets.com. So those are all brands that we've acquired over the last roughly 10 years and kind of rolled them up. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And did you raise any money other than the high interest loan shark loan from your parents along the way? I paid off the loan, my, my loan shark mom, uh, three or four months later. Yeah. And no, it's always been bootstrapped. It's always been, you know, I was in an interesting spot where I was graduating college as the dot-com bust was happening. So a lot of my finance professors, you know, they talked, they talked bad about all the doc, all the money they were, it didn't, it didn't make sense at the time. And it didn't make sense after, yeah. but kind of like today. a little bit a little bit so when it busts created an nft of something and sold it for a hundred thousand dollars and yeah this this, this is very similar for those of us who were around during that boom bust period yeah for sure so um so i just kind of like that burned a mark in my mind of like raising other people's money and just burning through it and not having any regard for it because the the dot-com bubble you know people were raising millions and throwing these big huge parties and just blowing it on super bowl ads so I was very scared. The to banjo. Raise- you remember whoever, who did the one where the monkey played the banjo for four seconds and it said, we just blew 5 million bucks. What are you doing with your money? I think it was like E-Trade or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't have that kind of money. And that's, and I would say that it's been good and bad, not raising money. I, you know, the good side is that we've, we've always need to make a profit. I always need to pay my rent. Yeah. We've always been very, um, you know, we can expand when we have money, when there's cash flow, when there's profit, um, we can add more people. We can move to a bigger office, all that kind of stuff. But on the other side, you know, not raising money has definitely slowed down growth where it could have yep. grown faster. And I also think not having outside equity partners, I think outside equity partners really help you put a, you know, they want to get paid. They they want to return on their investment. They want to. Yeah. There's no horse blinders on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They'll force. That. Yeah. I, I, I have seen sometimes like companies endlessly convince themselves that, reinvestment is going to, you know, they make the reinvestment, they don't get the return. I think that's where an investor, Hey, are we really going to get $3 if we put a dollar into this? You know, are, are you willing to stake your bonus based on that? And then, well, uh, not, not so much. Yeah, I totally agree. I think for a long time, I was kind of a naysayer on outside capital, but being, you know, sure. If you're super small and you're going to stay under like 10 million of revenue, probably you don't need outside capital. But if you want to, get, if you get bigger, yeah, I think having outside advisors, outside board members, out, just other people that call your BS. Yeah. Otherwise, it can just turn into a lifestyle business. So, what uh, in those early days, sort of, what were some, uh, what was your best decision and worst decision? Wow, that's the best decision. I think because it was all, I was the only, I didn't have a partner. It was all me. Yeah. And I'm pretty aggressive when it comes to investing in marketing. Yeah. But like every penny we had went back into marketing. Like I didn't, I was very young. I didn't have a family. I was, you know, had an apartment. Right. apartment. It was, so it was like a, our marketing budget was massive then. So I think in the beginning it was, that was worked out. What worked out, it was just all reinvesting in customer acquisition. Um, it was also a very great time in the internet. There wasn't a lot of competition. It was pretty cheap to market. In terms of worst decision, it's kind of, I went a long time hiring like friends or friends of friends. You know, I was young, very inexperienced, hadn't worked in a big corporate job, didn't have experience interviewing strangers and asking that, you know, what would make them a good. So it's, I think, you know, 
my first probably 25 hires as we were growing pretty quickly between like 2000 and 2005 was someone I knew or knew they knew somebody. And, you know, those people only have so many skills and it can only take you so far. Um, a lot of loyalty, a lot of very loyal, great people, right. but um, took a long time to figure that out. You know, took many years. And so has it been a pretty, I mean, almost hundred million dollars a year now, like is, is it been a pretty steady, you know, climb or, or was there a specific period that really uh, hit the hockey stick? Yeah, I would say the hockey. So I went to the first time I went to China was in 2004 uh, to find suppliers to go direct. So I had cut out the affiliate program and gone, you know, taken it in house. I was buying from us distributors of products and thought, well, they're just buying them from China. I can just find these people and cut them out. So I went to China and then that was a big boost for, for us as a company. We, you know, we were selling products online for the prices that my distributors were charging me locally. So at 2005 to 2010, we went from like 10 million to 60 million of revenue. And then from 60, uh, I would say from 60 to 80 million was our hardest um, because we were uh, like, a, you know, we were on QuickBooks. We didn't have any RP. We didn't have any yeah. HR people. We didn't have any like real accounting people. And we really had to stop and um, like institutionalize or, uh, you know, get corporate. You know, we, and I say that like before we did that, we could have had a mistake that could have crippled the business or put us out of business. Um, we just didn't have policies or procedures on anything. Um, and it was very much just a bunch of kids selling printer cartridges on the internet. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know any supply chain mistake, any cash flow mistake, anything. It was such a fragile business, and that doesn't matter when you're small. But as you get bigger, these little mistakes could be millions of dollars. So you know, 2012, 13, we built a big headquarters. We we built this um, our West Coast distribution center that I'm in now. Spent millions in like warehouse automation and supply chain. Got you know a lot there's. It's like Charlie in the chocolate factory back here with scanners and conveyors. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> so how many, how many people do you have today? We have about 200 globally. So we have a uh, 60 ish admin dev accounting, all that kind of stuff in long beach. We have a fulfillment center in Pennsylvania, and then we have a back office uh, team in the Philippines. And then we have uh, call center agents throughout Latin America. And, and I know you've made sort of culture, a big part of your, your company. Like what, what does culture mean to you? And and was that something that you believed all along or did your opinion really change on that at some point in terms of how that could be sort of a differentiator? Yeah, I think, I mean, looking, I mean, now I kind of know, I didn't know earlier, but looking back, you know, my mom worked at like a corporate office with like seven to eight people there, very big company, but a, a small seven, eight person corporate office. And when I was young and I was sick, I would go to my mom's work and they, I mean, it was odd. And this is like in the eighties, um, but they all ate lunch together. They all ordered lunch in and they all ate lunch at this big table together, like a family. And it was it's pretty, look, like I found out later it was unique, but I just thought that's how everybody did it. Yeah. And, you know, they all knew each other. I mean, they still know each other. It's been 35 years. I think my mom's, you know, she won't retire. Um, mm. But it was just very family oriented, very, you know, they all knew each other's kids and were, and was that like a top-down thing? But was that, or was that something that sort of happened bottoms up? I think it was top-down. I think yeah. the owner 
liked everybody. He liked them bringing him lunch. And for that, he just bought everybody else lunch. Yeah. <laughs> they were all nice lunches and he, they just sat there and ate together. And I, and, and I, not knowing better, I just thought like, Oh, that's cool. I guess that's how you do it. Um, that just always stuck with me and, you know, life's short. And I, we, so when we kind of created core values and all that kind of stuff, you know, 10 years after having ha- having the company, one of them was this like no jerks allowed core value. That was and, one of our early core values. And, you know, before it was like corporatized, it was like no, no assholes, you know, yeah. it was just like, we don't have, we don't have enough time. I don't, I don't want to go to work and deal with somebody that I don't, that I don't want to deal with every day. And it doesn't matter how great of a performer they are, how good of a salesperson they are. They can be the best developer. It just really degrades the rest yeah. of the team. And it's just not, I don't know. I'm not, I don't come to work every day to have fun, but I, I never want to wake up on a Monday and be like, damn, I don't want to see Tom today. I, I have a friend who has sort of a, a toxic boss situation is leaving. And he, he was saying, it's like everyone on the team, it's just like, it's that Monday morning high school feeling, right? Like, oh, I just can't. I mean, that's a t- how can you do good work? And yeah. this is a classic, you know, high performer, but someone who is just toxic, you know, at the same time. And those are so tough and that's tough yeah. to deal with. And then when, when you get that, then you kind of fit. It's tough to break up with as well. So we try and nip it in the bud really early. So that's been a big one. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's on our, it's on our badge. The back of our badges has our core values and you can just hold it up and be like, you know, we really try and hire and fire by our core values. So what are, what are all of them again? You want me to rally them off? Okay, here we go. Treat everyone like our guest. Um, We're all in. No jerks allowed. A happy place. Challenge the status quo and revel in our work. So it's always interesting to me, you know, unintended, like challenge the status quo, right? So has that come back, not to bite you, but where someone says, how do I do it this way? Because you told me to challenge the status quo. <laughs> I'm a big challenge the status quo person. Like yeah. when, when I'm in a meeting and I hear someone say, oh, that's how we've that's always how it done was. it. Yeah, it's like fighting words. Yeah. It's like the chalk, the, the nails on the chalkboard. Yeah. And I've always had this mantra, like if you're not running forward, if you're just standing still, everybody else is running forward and you know, you're actually being pushed backwards. So yeah. I probably challenge the status quo more, you know, break things more, more than I should, but I'm, I don't know. So yeah, those are core values. What, what's been the biggest tangible outcome for you of, of the culture? You know, is it uh, retention? Is it, you know, the, the level of engagement or what, like, what, what do you see? For sure is retention. Like we have a lot, it's surprising, you know, we're not, I mean, we're, we're in Long Beach, California. We're, you know, I don't know, a 20 minute drive into West LA, Santa Monica, or down 20 minutes down South to Irvine, where all the big tech companies are. Yeah. Anybody here can go get a job at Snapchat or Facebook or YouTube or other places, but they don't, and they stay here. And I think it's, um, you know, our average tenure in our dev team is like eight years. Wow. So, and everywhere else is the same. Part of that is, you know, we have, we, we've had a really, Previously, we had a really big customer service department in Long Beach right here, and we had a lot of people move up through that. So they were going to school locally at some university and working part-time in the call center, and then they finished uh, you know, their business degree or their accounting degree or whatever it is. And because we were growing so rapidly, we often needed new junior people. 
So they were able to segue, they were able to move over from the call center where they knew everything about our systems and our products and our customers, and then move into accounting or move into like our catalog team or, you know, even like junior paid search or affiliate people. So I think that also breeds a lot of loyalty. That was, you know, that wasn't by design. That was just because we needed bodies and we need a lot of junior people to help the kind of senior people and they've been able to move up. So I think that's part of it. And has that been tested with the great resignation this year? It hasn't been that bad. It hasn't, you know, uh, now I would say on average, we're a third of what most people are saying in terms of resignations. And again, we, I mean, I don't, it's not just me, but I think people do quit their boss and we have really great managers who really treat their employees well and respect them and, you know, want them to have a good career path, whether it's here or somewhere else. So, you know, often people aren't leaving, often people are leaving to pursue something that's not a good fit for what they're doing now. So like yeah. we we actually had just our head of uh, like e-commerce leave to go be a data scientist somewhere. Like he was just so inter- so just wanted to focus on the numbers and the data and not manage a marketing team. And I'm like, okay, that's that makes sense. Good for you. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. And and you uh, have like, I, I know one of the things that you focus on is your alumni. Like, I'd love to hear about that. I think it's a, I, I've said a few times, I've, I've actually written a book on this years ago, but it's been sitting on a shelf around sort of my TED talk on ending, ending two weeks notice. Uh, but I, I think we're running this 50 year old playbook on how people leave organizations, right? Where we pretend that they're never going to leave and then they pretend they're going doctor's appointments and then it just doesn't <laughs> end well. And we, you know, we're, we act all indignant and surprised. And when you look at any data that, you know, companies like yours, obviously longer, but, but the tenure shorter, uh, where someone like McKinsey, you know, forever has said, you want to leave? Awesome. Like, we'll train you, send you into the world and you'll go hire McKinsey and be a great you know, advocate for us. So how, how do you think about sort of uh, alumni? I think it's, it's somewhat like McKinsey, but obviously we're not McKinsey. You know, McKinsey. Well, compare yourself. That's always a good thing. Yeah, right? that, that, that's like the CEO factory. They want people to yeah. go other places so they can they can hire them. But we, you know, people are going to leave. We're only so big. You know, there's much bigger companies to go to. If people weren't leaving, maybe I'm not hiring good enough people, or we're not training them well enough. But you know, we try and look at it as hopefully this is mutually beneficial for both of us. And you learned a lot and great. Now our network is bigger and we're in, you know, we're in pretty competitive fields in e-commerce and in like Amazon marketplaces and stuff like that. So when people from those teams leave, it's great to keep in touch with them and kind of brainstorm. And, you know, we 
again, a lot of the people have been here for a long time. And I think part of it is that a lot of them started in, at junior positions that worked their way up. Yeah. So they feel a little like, hey, you gave me the opportunity to learn all these skills that, you know, I can go be a VP somewhere else where Aaron doesn't need 50 VPs at the company, but feel a little like we gave them a, a you know, they learned a lot here. So we're, we keep in touch with them and we've, we had our, and they're willing to come to you and have, so, so what happens when someone comes to you and says, Hey, Aaron, I want to, I think I want to go be a VP somewhere else. Uh, that's not, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that's not, <laughs> I say, yeah. you know, I'd love for you to be a VP here. We're not, yeah. we're not growing from, from, you know, a hundred million to 500 million in the next couple of years. Right. So unfortunately, you know, that, yes, you're great at what you do. Um, but unless Tom gets hit by a truck, um, we don't need another VP for that department. <laughs> so give us some, thank you for letting us know ahead of time. You know, we'd love to work on a, a you know, a plan to do that. Um, but yeah, giving that the, the random two week notice is often a surprise, you know, often a surprise here because most people, we know that they're working on something else. They've been telling us for and three years. And how do they know it's okay to do that? Have you clearly, have you told people, have you clearly demonstrated the psychological safety to have these discussions? Like I find a lot of people come into a company and they say, oh, well, they say to have these discussions, but then their parents or whatever said, no, that's not what you do. You don't do it that way. They'll walk you to the door, right? So is this yeah. is this something you're very explicit about or is it just sort of known in the culture? I think we're only explicit because people see it in action. Yeah. So our head of e-commerce just left, went to go become a data scientist. It was very amicable. I was no one, Nothing bad was said about him. And he's still a contractor working for us on, on, you know, nights and weekends, making sure nothing falls apart. So that shows so much goodwill on his behalf and on our behalf of like, you know, we, we gave him a really competitive consulting agreement. I said, Hey, charge us. So you don't feel like you're doing us a favor. And he, he's not. And, you know, we have all these, you know, uh, power BI reports and different data warehouse questions yeah. and everybody on the team emails him at rent. You know, and he said, I only answer by the weekend, but he answers all the time because he's just very involved. It's hard to get away. You know, people generally move because they've topped out here. You know, yeah. they, they, they would love they would love if we had more opportunity for them to move up in advance. But we're, you know, again, we're not growing by leaps and bounds. And we don't have part of that is you don't have a lot of attrition. So what, once person gets to the like manager level, there's not a director or VP level for them to move on to. Yeah, I just I would I would reinforce for people who are listening or leaders like that, you know, if you want people to have these sort of discussions with you before you get blindsided, you need to make it and demonstrate that it's super safe to have those discussions, right? I, I think because yeah. I, I I believe in this philosophy and we practice it, but I will also say to employee, if your company is the type of company that walks people to the door the day they tell them you're thinking about leaving, I wouldn't tell them you're thinking about leaving <laughs> because yeah. Yeah, obviously that's not the right. That's not the right playbook, you know, for that environment. Yeah, I think that's exactly true. And I think people see it. I mean, you can say whatever you want and create a corporate document and say, oh, we're, we treat people this way. Yeah. But when people see ex-employees come in and, yeah. and, oh, I just happen to be in town. I'm going to lunch with Aaron or I'm going to lunch with my old boss. Yeah. They're like, oh, wow. Okay, cool. You're not, when you leave, you're not an enigma. You're not, you don't become a villain. Yeah. And it's hard to see people leave, especially good people leave, but it's very rare, you know, maybe, you know, I don't want to put the percentage, but it's, it's rare that people do just leave on not great terms. You know, I had a debate with a head of culture for a company that thought I had a great culture years ago. It said, look, 
when people tell us they're leaving or give their two weeks notice, we just feel like it won't be a productive couple of weeks. So we just, we ask them to pack up and, you know, leave by the end of that day. And, you know, she just really demanded like innocuous. I'm like, so everyone else who sees that, <laughs> just so you know, it's pretty clear that the day you give notice, why give notice if the day you yeah. give notice is going to be your last day? So I, I understand you think that you're, it's all good terms and it's amicable, or whatever, but that's a very powerful message. I, I actually think even if they had no utility over the next two or three weeks, I think the message that it sends to everyone else saying, once you said that you're going to leave here, we're okay with you being around versus you can't be here for four hours after you told us that you're not going to be here. I, She just really missed the, the connection there between what that sort of trained the next hundred people to yeah. do. Like if I'm not that company, why would I, I, I go to the new job and I'd say, I'll start on Tuesday because first of all, you know, you're definitely letting go of knowledge transfer and stuff out of pride that you're, you're losing a lot of thing if you, that day, but I just, you know, I'd say to the company, Hey, look, I'm going to tell them on Friday, they're going to tell me to leave that day. So I'll start on Monday. Right. I mean, I'm, <laughs> you're not going to give any notice if you see that as a best practice. And it's funny. They just didn't see it that way. And I was like, but that's, that's how every other employee in the company is going to see it. hundred percent. And that is, uh, that sets up the standard of like, as soon as you're not an employee, we don't even trust you here. Yeah. We don't even trust yeah. you to yeah, last through the day. Yeah. Yeah. We need to walk you with security with a box. And just like, dude, I always say, if people person. want to steal from you, they did it long before that. Right. <laughs> are you going to, are you going to copy all the files after you tell someone they're leaving? Are you going to like, I always say the most dangerous people in a company are the ones that quit and stay. And they quit long before they gave that notice. And they probably did whatever bad thing they wanted to do long before that. So it's actually the dumbest time for them to do something, you know, yeah. egregious and out in the open when they're, when they're being watched. And it's so rare for somebody to do something bad as they're leaving. It's, so it's just like, you're going right. to muddy the waters with all these employees. I see another CEO once said, uh, I don't remember who it was, so maybe I can steal this now, but he said it, something in this context of, I, I know you'll agree with this. He said, if everyone who's leaving your company is doing like horrible acts at the end, you need to ask yourself a really hard question about one, are you hiring terrible people or is there something about your culture that makes them pretty terrible? And I thought, yeah. Cause it's really one of those two options, right? That's a big tell right there. If yeah. you're worried about what people are going to do on their way out, you are not treating them right. Right. Or you let the, the brilliant jerk, you know, there and you knew that they were unethical or whatever and yeah. you tolerated that. Right. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. That's dangerous. Either way, that's dangerous. Yeah, I agree with what you said. Like, and, and there's another argument to be made. Let's say one out of 100 people do something. And that's been our number. Just do something kind of stupid or a little unethical. Like, is that is the 1% a reason to have a draconian policy, you know, yeah. that, that demonstrates that you don't trust anyone rather than saying, you know what? One person out of a hundred, we were yeah. trusting and they broke our trust. And, 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 but that's not, you know, is that an acceptable yeah. tolerance level? I think, I mean, I think a long time ago, we, we did a lot of things for the exceptions for the 1%. And now we've come to a point where we're just like, let's just treat people like adults. They'll act like adults. And, you know, when that happens, that that'll be the outlier. I remember I, I, some big company changed their dress code and it was just like dress appropriately. You yeah. have to babysit people. And if you know you have clients coming in or if you're flying to New York for a meeting, you obviously need to dress better than if it, you know, it, it's not. a really good point that you make. I, I think so many leaders and whatever, 
manage to exceptions, not the majority, or you hear about the exception. So like, you know, historically, like we just haven't really done counter offers. Like it's just the data on it is pretty clear. When someone says they're leaving. Yeah. If they say they're leaving for, uh, you know, money and yeah. they want to be matched and it's never it, it, the data is like 90% will be gone within 12 months. Right. 100%. But yeah. people will point to the one that stayed or whatever. But my, my logic is always, if you're doing something repeated and over and over again, why would you point to the 10% of the time that it worked and not yeah. the 90? If something has a 90% failure rate, like don't, I, I, a lot of times, again, people point to, or a bad interviewing process. Well, look, look, Aaron came through that. Well, but if it was a terrible process, 90% of the other, they point yeah. to the exception and not what, what works for the majority. Like the whole broken watch thing is right twice a day. And that doesn't mean it's, it's right. Totally. We we're the same way with counter offers. Like if someone comes, it's very rare that we, the only time we've done that is when it's been a junior person that needed a big pay raise. Hey, they, they, it was, you know, they'd now, they were right. now they were, they were a month away from getting it anyway. Right. Or, yeah, yeah. But nine, honestly, that's, I could think of one in the last 10 years that we've done that. But most of the time, if somebody has crossed that threshold mentally, they're already on the market. They're already talking with recruiters. They're already in that frame of reference yeah. of what could be better. You know, the, the grass is already greener on the other side for them. So there's no kind of no going back. All right. So uh, last question for you, Aaron. I mean, we talked a little bit about this before, but you know, I guess more holistically, this can be singular or repeated and it can be personal or professional. So it's multivariant. But what's what's the mistake you've made that you've learned the most from in your career? I don't know. I mean, it's funny. We're on like talking about hiring and firing and all that kind of stuff. I would say that like, I was always very slow to fire. And that's not like, you know, it's not fun to talk about terminating yeah. people. It's never easy to terminate people. But it's like, when you know, you know, and I've had people that literally I took a year to finally pull the trigger. And then and everyone then, else said to you, what were you waiting for? A hundred percent. And when you do that as a leader and as a CEO, you one diminish the rest of the people that are here working hard and all that kind of stuff. And then they just think you're kind of spineless, you know, it's just like, and, and I've had those people where I just kind of knew it was time. We needed to make a break. And I've just delayed and delayed and made all these excuses for, for people. And also we have long tenure. I've known these people for a long time, so it is very difficult, but I would say I have never, ever regretted a termination after the fact that where, where I've had to do it just because they were the wrong fit or they weren't living up to performance yeah. and stuff like that. So I would say that's And they're usually my, not doing well and they know it. And yeah, it's, they always know it. It's, it's much harder on, I mean, it's very rare that the person is surprised. Yeah. And if you're doing a good job, they should never be surprised. You know, if they're getting performance reviews and you're being honest with them and having one-on-ones and letting them know what they're not li- living up to. Um, if it's ever a surprise, it's your fault. We, we just had that in another department where the, per- the, the salesperson was literally shocked. And I was like, wow, their manager is not doing a very good job letting them know how they're right. doing. All right, great. Well, Aaron, where can people learn more about you or find more about you or LD products? Yeah, just ldproducts.com is our main corporate website. You can always look me up on LinkedIn, just under Aaron Leon. All right. Thanks. Well, hey, great to talk to you. Uh, you built incredible business. Love hearing about your story uh, and, and culture. I like like seeing the, the good guys win. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Great. Well, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Aaron and his work and company on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, love to ask a favor. And that's if you could leave a review because it helps new users to discover the show. Uh, If you're using Apple Podcasts, super simple. Just hit the library icon, click on Elevate and scroll down to the bottom to leave your review. 
If you're listening in a different browser or app, you can see ways to uh, leave a feedback at uh, robertglazer.com slash podcast. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.